Hello and welcome to the show that explores the history and literature of the Bible. This ain't your father's Bible podcast, unless you're my daughter, in which case you can disregard that previous statement. Hi, sweetie. All right, uh, this is going great so far. Anyway, welcome to book. This is Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I am Josh Way. We're coming to the end of our examination of the Hebrew Scriptures, and today we round a major corner. The last several scrolls in the Hebrew canon have focused on Israel, or more specifically Judah, and its traumatic experiences in exile over several generations. Book after book has offered stories, prayers, and prophecies from the people of Yahweh in their forced relocation to Babylon and later in Persia. We've watched with anxious empathy as everything from the first half of the Hebrew Bible, all the laws, songs, hopes, and dreams of the Israelites, have been trampled upon or at least called into question. How could a religion and a covenant so firmly rooted in a particular geographic location survive an exile that lasts several hundred years? In particular, how could they survive without the temple, the religious, social, and economic center of Israel, or the Torah? the laws and precepts designed specifically for life in the so-called promised land. In today's material, we'll see exactly what happens when the scattered Israelites, now internationally known as Jews, find their way back to Jerusalem. And somewhat typical of Hebrew stories and biblical literature and history in general, it's not exactly what we'd expect. Ezra and Nehemiah offer two separate accounts of Judah's return from exile, but there's evidence that the two were compiled together in ancient collections and early Jewish tradition considered them a single book. They both appear to be pieced together from public records, census data, and first-person accounts. The Ezra portion begins where the book of Chronicles left off with an historic proclamation from then-emperor of the world, King Cyrus of Persia. Here's how the text begins, Ezra 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, when the word of Yahweh spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled, Yahweh roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his realm by word of mouth and in writing as follows. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, Yahweh God of heaven has given me all kingdoms of the earth and has charged me with building him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. Any one of you, of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem that is in Judah and build the house of Yahweh God of Israel, the God that is in Jerusalem. And all who stay behind, wherever he may be living, let the people of his place assist him with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, besides the free will offering to the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Cyrus decrees what the people of Israel and Judah have been dreaming of for centuries, the end of exile and the return to Jerusalem. This is good news, great news to be sure, and yet it comes through an unsavory channel. Emperor Cyrus was surely not the Jews' first choice for a liberator, though we do recall that he was mentioned by name in a prophecy of Isaiah. And his decree leaves us wondering how much liberation is actually going on here. Instead of returning home of their own accord after the vindicating defeat of the pagan Persian hordes, Israel will return with Persian blessing and funding, and with Cyrus taking credit for their good fortune. When Cyrus declares that Israel's God has, quote, given me all the kingdoms of the earth, we can't help but think of Daniel and his very pointed visions about such things. We also learn in chapter 1 that Persia has appointed a prince of Judah who has a very Persian name. This is all far from ideal. 
Still, the decree is made and the pathway home is cleared for about 50,000 descendants of the original Judah exiles who choose to take the trip. And the first order of business for the heads of households upon returning to Jerusalem is to hold a fundraiser for the demolished temple. Remember, the two geographically specific pillars of Jewish identity that had been broken in exile were temple and Torah, and the first of these is already being repaired. In chapter 3, the temple altar is rebuilt so sacrifices can resume and feasts can be observed. Now keep in mind, these are not merely superstitious religious observances or worship services. Temple activities like sacrifices and feasts were the engine of Israel's religious, economic, political, and social life, and they'd been cut off and suspended entirely for hundreds of years. This is a major milestone in the restoration of Jerusalem and the people now known as Jews. There's still something missing, however, but we'll get to that later. For now, the temple is rebuilt, and the text says that the people rejoice, but the old men weep. Are these tears of nostalgia, of awe, or perhaps of world-weary wisdom? Could things ever be like they were before? Should things ever be like they were before? In Ezra chapter 4, the leaders of New Judah encounter opposition from a group of local inhabitants, themselves descendants of exiles who'd been relocated to the land of Judah by the Assyrian Empire generations earlier. At first, these local strangers make overtures about teaming up with the Judahites and building a temple where they too could sacrifice to their presumably pagan gods. When the returned exiles reply with an emphatic no, the strangers begin to harass the Jews and bribe local officials to make their lives difficult. They also write a letter of complaint against the Jews to the new Persian emperor Artaxerxes, whom we remember from the book of Esther, the events of which were unfolding at approximately this same time. The letter warns the king that should the, quote, rebellious and wicked city of Jerusalem be rebuilt, the Jews would surely stop paying tributes and taxes to the empire. In response, Artaxerxes shuts down all reconstruction, which won't resume for 15 years, until the reign of King Darius, who discovers the old decree of Cyrus in the imperial archives and decides to uphold it. And in chapter 6, the temple is fully rebuilt and the family of returned exiles celebrates the very poignant Passover feast. Things are looking up. Chapter 7 introduces our titular subject, Ezra, a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron and an expert in Torah, who had come back to Jerusalem during the reign of Artaxerxes, one of several Artaxerxes, possibly the same person as King Darius in the previous chapter. It's kind of confusing. From this point, the text shifts to a first-person account by Ezra of his journey back to the land. On his way, he assembles all the Levites he can find. Now, Levites were descendants of the original tribe of Levi who were designated as Israel's priests. When Ezra and his band of priests arrive back in Jerusalem, they make a series of offerings, and then Ezra takes stock of the covenant community in light of the Torah. The result is one of the most awkward and, to our modern eyes and hearts, unpleasant episodes in the Bible. In chapter 9, Ezra throws a bit of a fit because the returned exiles, including many of the priests, had nullified their covenant status by marrying foreign women. He prays a long and anguished prayer to Yahweh about the intermarriage problem, begging him to forgive the people. It's awkward enough that he prays this in front of the assembly of men and their foreign wives, but then in chapter 10, those guilty of intermarriage are identified and shamed, and Ezra makes this plea. We have trespassed against our God by bringing into our homes foreign women from the peoples of the land, but there's still hope for Israel despite this. 
Now then, let us make a covenant with our God to expel all these women and those who've been born to them in accordance with the bidding of Yahweh and of all who are concerned over the commandments of our God, and let the Torah be obeyed. Take action, for the responsibility is yours, and we are with you. Act with resolve. Now, this may not be as shocking to us as some of the more bloody and fatal episodes in the earlier Hebrew literature, but the forced breakup of thousands of marriages and the banishment of women and children is not the easiest pill to swallow. And you can imagine what kinds of awful things this particular passage has been taken out of context to defend and justify over the years. We can remind ourselves that ancient marriage was a very different institution from what we now know. We can tell ourselves that these are primarily fertility arrangements designed to maintain family lineage, but none of that can really put a happy face on what is essentially the purification of the returned people of Judah and the forced exclusion of thousands of women and kids. Now, I have no positive spin to put on this, and that would be a waste of my time anyway. Our job as readers and interpreters is, first and foremost, to understand what's happening in a text in context. And what we essentially have here is a hard collision between the ideals of Torah and the reality of exile. We've observed many times in book that the best and only way to understand the Torah covenant is as the boundaries of identity for a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time in history. For the returned exiles of Judah, desperate to reclaim their original identity as the people of God in the land of Israel, a different type of sacrifice is deemed necessary. Let's summarize Ezra like this. The people of Judah return from exile and set up shop in their beloved city, Jerusalem. They have two primary orders of business, rebuild the temple and enact the Torah. The first one is vertical. It deals with their relationship with their God as they understand it. They encounter some opposition and suffer setbacks, but ultimately their patience pays off and the temple is restored. The second task is horizontal. It involves their relationships with one another, which is the real essence of Torah. This task proves much more difficult, and the account ends somewhat obtusely with a roster of all the families which were divided on that occasion. Well, I'm kind of glad we're not ending on that note, and now we can turn the page to Nehemiah. Here's how the scroll begins. The narrative of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev of the twentieth year, when I was in the fortress of Shushan. Hanani, one of my brothers, together with some men of Judah, arrived, and I asked them about the Jews, the remnant who had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, The remnant who have survived the captivity there in the province are in dire trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall is full of breaches, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. At this news, Nehemiah weeps and prays a heartfelt prayer to Yahweh, begging for the restoration of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah, by chance, is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes I, most likely the same Artaxerxes who sent Ezra back to the land in the previous text. Nehemiah convinces the king to send him back to Jerusalem with credentials to inspect the ruined city and oversee its reconstruction. The king agrees, and Nehemiah takes the journey to his true home. There, he organizes and equips the returned exiles to rebuild and puts them to work. Chapter 3 details the groups of men and women who worked on the city walls and lists the gates that they repaired one by one, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the valley gate, and so on. As in Ezra's account of the temple reconstruction, a small group of unhappy locals then organizes against the rebuilding of the wall. These men, led by Sanballat the Horonite, begin to taunt and discourage the workers. They plot to fight against the Jews in Jerusalem while their mockery begins to seriously dampen morale. 
It gets so bad that, in chapter 4, Nehemiah reorganizes the workers into half-shifts, with some working on the wall and the rest guarding them with swords and spears. Then, in what we call chapter 5, Nehemiah discovers injustice among the returned exiles, as the Jewish officials and nobles levy fat taxes with interest on the rest of the people. Nehemiah appeals to them as, quote, Jewish brothers and convinces them to abandon their schemes. He's appointed governor of Judah by the people, and he's so generous that he suspends his own salary to help the poor. Meanwhile, Sanballat and his cronies continue to plot against Nehemiah, conspiring to destroy his reputation, but he catches wind of their scheme and refuses to dignify their insults. They even threaten to warn King Artaxerxes of a coming Jewish rebellion. Then things get intriguing in chapter 6 when this happens. Verse 10. Then I visited Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, when he was housebound, and he said, Let us meet in the house of God, in the sanctuary, and let us shut the doors of the sanctuary, for they are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. I replied, Will a man like me take flight? Besides, who such as I can go into the sanctuary and live? I will not go in. Then I realized that it was not God who sent him, but that he uttered that prophecy about me, Tobiah and Sanballat having hired him, because he was hired that I might be intimidated and act thus and commit a sin, and so provide them with a scandal with which to reproach me. So Sanballat's gang pays off a friend of Nehemiah's to lure him into the temple for safety, where his inappropriate presence would have ruined his reputation, because he's not a priest, you see. But Nehemiah's increasingly apparent integrity foils their plot. The Jerusalem wall is rebuilt and the people rejoice and a census is taken. It's one of those biblical moments that's pretty boring for us but meant a lot to the people. Remember back in the Torah when the wandering Hebrews finally arrived at the land of Israel. Since the generation that settled weren't the same as the generation that had set out, genealogies and tribal lineages became the way for new Israel to have continuity with the old. Same thing here. In fact, we'll have more to say about the similarities between the return from exile and the exodus soon enough. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra appears and stands before the congregation of Jerusalem reading the Torah out loud. The people celebrate and cheer and the priests walk among them explaining the text to them. We should understand that this is much more than a Sunday school class. These Jews have likely never heard the actual stories and laws and the terms of their ancient identity. This is like getting a crash course in who you really are. The joyous significance of this moment for the exile remnant cannot be overstated. Next, the people celebrate the Jewish feast of Sukkot, or booths, and Nehemiah takes the occasion in chapter 9 to retell all of Israel's history from creation to Abraham to Egypt to Canaan all the way to the exile and the return. The people, under the guidance of Ezra and the priests, decide then and there to renew the ancient covenant for their own time with a new document signed by all the elders and officials. Most of the rest of Nehemiah is a compilation of priestly duties, lists, and rosters which remind us very much of, you guessed it, Torah. At the end of the scroll, the people of Judah hold a dedication service for the rebuilt city, and in chapter 13, Nehemiah enacts a few final reforms, like cleaning out the storerooms of the temple which some of the officials were using as a personal storage facility. He writes a few injustices and rather forcefully warns the Jewish remnant not to intermarry with the surrounding peoples lest they compromise their mission to fully recover their Israelite identity. Then Governor Nehemiah leaves his post to return to his job in the court of Artaxerxes. The scroll ends with him praying to Yahweh, Please remember me, O God, for my good. 
In one sense, Ezra and Nehemiah represent a sort of climax for the Bible's exiled drama. And this explains why the events of the book and the literary presentation of the events is so liberally peppered with allusions to and echoes of the Exodus story. In a very real sense, this was a second Exodus. And yet, there's something of an anti-climax here as well. The entire affair is conducted under Persian imperial scrutiny, the number of returning exiles is notably small, and every step of the process is mired by conflict without and within the Jewish community. And there's one giant thing missing from the triumphant return of God's people to Jerusalem as imagined by the prophets. There's not a whole lot of triumph, and there's not very much God for that matter. There's no scene, for example, where God's glory, quote, fills the temple as in the original Torah accounts or in Ezekiel's prophecy about the return to the land. And while the Torah is celebrated and embraced by the fledgling community at Jerusalem, it also tears the people's lives apart. Overall, a violent and somewhat disturbing homecoming. Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor oversaw an often painful, sometimes joyous, and ultimately hopeful new beginning for the people of Judah. But there's a real sense that the exile, for all practical purposes, isn't over, and may not be over for a long time. This is an important new biblical tension and a theme to which we will return in the Greek New Testament. Stay tuned. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to respond here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible Pals. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>